Welcome to ABI Podcast. This is Melissa Jacoby. I'm the resident scholar at the ABI for spring 2016 and a law professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Today we're talking about the clash between bankruptcy and forfeiture actions, and I can't imagine a better guest for this discussion. It's Karen Gebbia, a professor at Golden Gate University, formerly of University of Hawaii, and she chairs the American Bar Association's Business Law Section Initiative and Working Group on Asset Forfeiture and Business Bankruptcy, and also has produced some very helpful scholarship on the subject. Welcome, Professor Gebbia. Thank you so much, Melissa. I really appreciate the opportunity to share some information about this important issue. Well, and we're eager to hear it. So let's start with a basic question. Just give us a brief reminder of what forfeiture law is before we get into the clash. Okay. Well, although there are different types of forfeiture, the really striking thing about forfeiture that distinguishes it from any other sanctions that could be imposed by a court or governmental agency is that forfeiture allows, and in fact usually actually requires, the government to seize assets. Often this occurs when the DOJ is pursuing a criminal action or the SEC is pursuing a securities law violation, although it's available for a variety of other state and federal agencies and a variety of other purposes. Um, And so what happens is the government can seize not just property that has been used to facilitate a crime or a securities law violation, but also the proceeds of that crime or violation, the profits of the operation. And if none of that is available, they can go out and essentially get a money judgment and seize what's called substitute property, which basically means any property it can find. Um, So for example, if you had fraud that infiltrated a business operation, the forfeitable assets could constitute most or all of the business's assets, which are, of course, the same assets that the creditors would otherwise be looking to for payment. So, yes, the clash is becoming clearer and clearer very early. So you've called fraud the deranged matchmaker between bankruptcy and forfeiture law. And I'm getting the sense that these two areas do not play well together. And maybe you can give us a sense of why why that is. Right. And, you know, I've done some writing on how this comes up in fraud in particular, but it's not limited to fraud. But the reality is that since forfeiture law was expanded to cover financial crimes such as fraud, the clash has become really dramatic. And so essentially what's going on, the reason bankruptcy and forfeiture clash is because they have different purposes. Uh, When you think about forfeiture, it came out of a system that is focused on the bad guy. Its goal is to take the ill-gotten gains and property used to facilitate crime against the bad guy. You know, and bankruptcy is okay about not giving relief to the bad guy as well. It doesn't give the discharge or discharge fraudulently incurred debts. But the problem is, or one of the problems, is that forfeiture and bankruptcy take dramatically different approaches with respect to distribution of the assets. So while bankruptcy law is trying to maximize value by having single collective enforcement proceeding, which is the classic um, characteristic of other insolvency proceedings, such as receiverships and assignments for benefit of creditors. Uh, And then it takes that and tries to distribute it equitably. It's using a very sophisticated, detailed, 
statutorily prescribed priority scheme, and that scheme is taking all of the stakeholders into account. And it applies regardless of why the debtor is in bankruptcy. Forfeiture, in contrast, it did start out as a collective creditor's rights enforcement proceeding. So it actually didn't begin with any foundational principles regarding asset distribution. As it expanded, the idea of ultimately distributing some of the forfeited proceeds to victims became important, especially with the rise of the victims' rights movement and as the government began to amass literally billions of dollars worth of forfeited property. Uh, but it's not just a situation that's a turf war, either bankruptcy or forfeiture, administering the assets and making distributions. The actual substantive results in terms of how much is going to be available, who is going to receive distributions, how the distributions will be shared may vary dramatically depending on whether forfeiture is administering the assets or bankruptcy is administering the assets. And that's all further complicated by the fact that when the parties and courts try to resolve the substantive tensions, there are no procedural rules that govern the interactions between bankruptcy and forfeiture. Uh, regarding even the most fundamental things, like can the courts talk to each other? Do the parties have to let the courts know about the parallel proceedings? Uh, can they share evidence? Um, will the U.S. attorneys talk to the bankruptcy trustees, etc.? You know, and as you indicated at the outset, um, 20 years ago, this didn't have a huge impact because the scope of forfeiture was much narrower. And so it only occasionally affected insolvency cases. The two main changes that have occurred, especially since around 2000, are that forfeiture now has extended to virtually all federal crimes, fraud, financial crimes, securities law violations. It's no longer limited to maritime law and drug crimes. And secondly, the scope of what can be taken is very, very broad, not just facilitating property proceeds, substitute property, as I've mentioned, but the real bellwether is something called relation back doctrine. And under this theory, the title to all of the forfeited property vests in the government at the time the crime was committed. So under that theory, property that we would think is property of the bankruptcy estate never actually became property of the estate because the government's title vests back to years ago when the crime began. So bankruptcy professionals will intuitively understand why this this matters, what you've just explored, and also should be struck by that expansion of when forfeiture can arise. The challenge, of course, is making Congress care to the extent that legislative solutions are one of the ways you ultimately want to go. So tell us a little more about who the who the affected parties are by this lack of coordination. It may vary from case to case, but if you can give us some examples, that might be helpful. Okay, well, in general, I would say that the most important thing to recognize that everyone from every constituency should and does recognize is that there is so much waste, increased cost, and inefficiency that comes from the fact that we have duplicate conflicting systems, we have extensive litigation, the Rothstein case in Florida is a good example, um, 
over really fundamental procedural and substantive principles, and all of that waste and uncertainty is increasing the cost and reducing recoveries for everyone. And in addition, Congress really should care about this a lot because these problems did not arise because Congress made a conscious policy decision here. In fact, they arose because bankruptcy law and forfeiture law were developed separately with very little thought about how they would impact each other. Um, And when we have that situation, the conflicts actually undermine the policies that that underlie each set of laws. Uh, So when we think about um, how the current status, you know, helps or hurts parties, one of the major problems is that the results in terms of who may fare better under bankruptcy versus forfeiture often are entirely fortuitous. They may vary from case to case based on completely arbitrary matters, such as the timing of the filing, the specifics of the charging decision, etc. So we don't have predictability, which obviously undermines everyone's ability to assess risk and plan. Um, so if you'd like, I can talk a little bit about the sort of fundamental ways that those policies are different and why that leads to, um, you know, fortuitous results. Would that be helpful? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. So essentially, we we have three really fundamental differences between the way forfeiture distributes property and the way bankruptcy distributes property. And there are no clearly defined principles to decide which asset goes to forfeiture versus which asset goes to bankruptcy. So uh, it's very difficult to figure out which system would apply. So the first fundamental difference is Whereas in bankruptcy, we're used to looking at a pool that involves all of the assets and all of the stakeholders. Under forfeiture, the pool of entities who may receive something from a forfeiture fund is very narrowly limited to victims. And whether you qualify as a victim is defined by the crime of conviction, which, of course, is defined by the prosecutor's charging decision So, for example, if we have a defendant who ran a fraudulent scheme through his business, that defendant may have an incentive to cooperate with the government by entering a a guilty plea rather than proceeding to trial and by agreeing to forfeit all of the business's assets. So if, uh, for example, the government and the defendant agree to a plea of securities fraud, the pool of victims will be the the defrauded investors. It will not include rate creditors. So if all of the assets are forfeited to the government and then used to pay the investors, there's nothing left in the bankruptcy estate to pay the trade creditors, who we, of course, would expect to come before investors. Um, secondly, whereas in bankruptcy, you have a very detailed scheme regarding who gets what, Forfeiture proceeds are not governed by a detailed statutory priority mandate. In general, the Attorney General has broad discretion to distribute the funds to victims, if at all, or retain the funds for government uses, such as sharing among different government agencies. If the proceeds are remitted to victims at all, the AG has discretion with respect to how much, 
how, to whom, etc. And we can see the effect of this really dramatically if you compare the websites of the Madoff Special Master, who's managing the Victims Fund, to the Madoff Trustee, that was a SIPA proceeding, um, Irving Picard, who is making distributions to the SIPA uh, creditors, which are you know, essentially like the bankruptcy case. Uh, and of course, we have the problem of um, transparency. We're, as bankruptcy experts, we're very used to knowing exactly what happens, what the assets were, how they were liquidated, how they were distributed, who is and isn't entitled to distribution and why. And that type of transparency simply does not exist in forfeiture and the process of remitting um, forfeited assets to victims. So you mentioned Madoff. Are there any other cases that you think are sort of paradigmatic of the, the challenges associated with these two conflicting regimes? Yeah, there are many, uh, large and small, across the country. They're appearing everywhere right now. But there are two basic paradigms, each of which has distinct problems. The first is the basic Ponzi scheme, where there really is no ongoing business because the business itself was the fraud. And Madoff is emblematic of that type of thing. Um, the second, which presents all of the problems that Madoff prevents, uh, presents with respect to conflicting distribution schemes and determining who's going to administer assets and who's going to be entitled to distributions and ensuring that there aren't duplicate distributions, all of that and more comes up in cases where we actually had a viable business that is then infiltrated by some kind of fraud. So, for example, we had Adelphia, which was a viable business, and then there was a securities disclosure issue. We had two law firms, Rothstein down in Florida and Dreyer up in New York, where there was some kind of person involved in the firm, engaged in some kind of fraud, and then all of the assets are, or most of the assets are grabbed by the government when, in fact, there is a legitimate business who has clients, customers, employees, trade creditors, et cetera, who are not part of the equation in terms of what's going to happen with those um, funds that have all been forfeited. So given these multiple paradigms, and as you said, this is coming up all over the country in cases large and small, courts and lawyers and other professionals are having to muddle through without more coordination or guidance. So what are they doing to manage the dissonance here? Well, that's a great question. Um, it really, at this point, has been ad hoc. And a big part of what we're doing with the working group is trying to reduce the extent to which it's ad hoc, so reducing cost and waste. And this is happening in really two main areas. The first is coordination among the courts towards procedural solutions, and the second is cooperation among the parties towards substantive resolutions. So with respect to what's going on in the courts, you know, some courts have concerns that without actual rules, they can't actually even talk to each other. Fortunately, we have several courts that have been more creative, often with guidance from more creative counsel, and they have um, actually sat in joint session with one or more district court judges who are handling the criminal and or civil actions and the bankruptcy judge handling the bankruptcy action and have entered parallel orders in their cases, case management orders, 
case coordination agreements and actual substantive cooperation sort of analogous to settlement agreements among the parties. They've done this by borrowing from rules that really weren't designed for these kinds of cases such as status hearing, case conference, settlement agreement rules. Um, substantively, the most important solution is what the parties are doing. If we can get the prosecutor and the trustee talking to each other um, and understanding what's going on in, uh, from each of their perspectives, then they may be able to implement a cooperation agreement that the courts can approve. And these cooperation agreements really are quite substantive. They can talk about the division of the assets, who will administer which assets, who will distribute which proceeds, etc. So we've seen various types of cooperation or coordination in cases like Madoff, Dreyer, Petters um, in Minnesota, Adelphi, etc. And those agreements now can serve as models for other cases, and that's a, a hugely valuable resource. So for those who might be approaching this issue for the first time or aren't fully satisfied with the way they're dealing with it, where can they go for more resources to sort of look at best practices? Yeah, well, there are two things, and I think we can link a lot of these things um, to the podcast. Um, we have worked with the Federal Judicial Center on these problems, and the Federal Judicial Center actually created a training video for federal judges. It is available now not only on the federal judges' website, but also to the public on the FJC's YouTube. We also, uh, in the working group, are in the process of wrapping up the manuscript to a forthcoming book, which is titled A Guide to the Judicial Management of Parallel Asset Forfeiture and Insolvency Proceedings um, that we believe the FJC will be publishing. Um, there are also some excerpts from that book that were part of the National Conference of Bankruptcy Judge Jurials at the 2015 annual meeting. There are a lot of materials, programs, and other materials on uh, the ADA, and we're actually working uh, next month to try to put them in a place that's more easily accessible. Um, there was a, a symposium that the Golden Gate University um, published in the summer of 2012 with eight articles, a five-article mini-theme symposium that Business Law Today published. There's an amazing book on the Ponzi scheme piece of it that two of our members, uh, Judge Rhodes and Kathy Phelps, wrote called the Ponzi book, and it has a great web page. Um, in terms of uh, actually learning about how forfeiture and disgorgement, which is a similar process that the SEC follows, works. A great resource is the DOJ Criminal Division webpage, specifically the Asset Forfeiture and Money Laundering section, which handles all the forfeitures. Um, and then finally, um, there is the ABA resolution and report that gives a lot of background on these problems. So that's a bunch of resources. In terms of actually what you can do when one of these cases comes up, the most important thing that you can do is to reach out to your United States trustee's office. We have been working with the Executive Office of the U.S. Trustee, the Executive Office of the U.S. Attorney, and the DOJ's main justice policy and training to ensure that when you reach out to the U.S. Trustee's Office, somebody knows what's going on. So if your local trustee, uh, U.S. Trustee, doesn't know a lot about these cases, even though they have one foot in bankruptcy and one in the DOJ, 
without the executive office of the U.S. trustee, there's actually an assistant director for criminal enforcement who is very well versed in these issues. Also, your local organization, such as if you're a trustee, the National Association of Bankruptcy Trustees, um, one of their directors is a member of our group, Ron Peterson, so they're all really well um, familiar with these issues. So begin with the U.S. Trustee's Office. If you're a prosecutor, reach out to the Executive Office of the U.S. Attorney. Um, they will know who within their organization is the expert, and that's part of what we've been trying to do is ensure that uh, there's somebody in every organization who knows how to answer these questions. Terrific. That is a great set of resources. So you mentioned the ABA resolution and those associated materials. This would be a great time for you to tell us what the ABA resolution is seeking to do about the lack of coordination. What What is the proposal and how is it being received? Okay. Well, in February of 2014, the ABA House of Delegates adopted a resolution, and it's designed to do three things. To foster intercourt communication and coordination, to encourage agencies, intra-agency and interagency, to develop policies, protocols, and coordination on these cases, and it also encourages inter-party cooperation uh, for substantive resolution in these cases. And um, in general, you know, it's initially it may sound more like procedural coordination than substantive reconciliation. So we haven't, the ADA hasn't adopted a policy that says here's the legislation that the statutory changes that will resolve all the conflicts. And the reason for that. Um, is the first thing we need to do really is to stop the bleeding. And we can't have any progress in that regard until everyone is aware of the issues, the parties and courts are aware of the existence of the other parallel cases, and they're talking to each other. So we're trying to encourage the development of the protocols and uh, procedures to make that happen. And as a practical reality, that can happen much more quickly than legislative change. And almost as importantly, if the parties are talking to each other and cooperating and we have procedural co um, cooperation and coordination as well, that can actually lead to substantive resolution in individual cases. And it can actually go further than that by defining the primary areas of tension and consensus that we can then use to begin to frame the issues and solutions for ultimate legislative change. Uh, those, the actual long-term legislative change is a long process because the substance of policy reconciliation um, is a complex issue. We need to really um, somehow resolve the different policy regimes, and we ultimately need statutory change. And that is caught up in larger debates, um, raging in the criminal justice system, you know, as well as, of course, in politics. To say the least, yes. <laughs> so before we end, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you think the audience should hear about? You asked a little bit about legislative change. And one of the things that we have been able to do, in addition to going out and educating all of the various constituencies, including the federal judges, practitioners, trustees, et cetera, et cetera, um, the ABA is 
the ABA resolution is ABA policy. And although we have in our working group members of a number of governmental agencies, one of the things we recognized is that when it came time for legislative change, each of us would need to state our official position separately. So within the ABA, there is also a smaller overlapping group uh, of which many of our members are, several of our members are part of, which serves as the legislative liaison with respect to the policies that are adopted in this resolution. And as you may know, there has been some recent congressional interest in forfeiture. Uh, so last year, the ABA was actually invited to send representatives from this legislative liaison group to meet with congressional staff and counsel. Uh, to provide background briefings on these intersections. As a result of that meeting, we were actually asked to provide um, draft statutory language dealing with all of these issues that we've been talking about. Transparency, procedural uh, coordination among the courts, substantive cooperation among the parties, and inter- and intra-agency protocols. Um, that request came from staffers representing both the minority and majority parties in the principal committees in both the House and Senate. Uh, so we did draft that language um, and then collaborated with the National Bankruptcy Conference who provided their input on the language. And that language that would essentially implement um, the resolution and the procedural cooperation and interparty collaboration we've been talking about has actually made its way back to Congress and we are watching for it hopefully to appear in a bill one day and we're hoping it'll be a non-controversial bill that sails through the passage very quickly. I share that hope with you, Karen. Uh, so that's a great place to end. So thank you, Professor Gebbia, for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And thank you to the listeners. We'll be talking again soon.